Well, it's a privilege to be able to be here and share with you this morning. Um, Sarah first came here in 2004, actually, so closer to two decades. Um, <laughs> kind of makes us feel old when we think about how long it's been since uh, both of us. I started at Wheaton a year before her in 2003, so that was about half my life ago that I started as a Wheaton College student. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, it's great to be here and to share from God's word this morning uh, with you all. Um, I'd like to pray um, before uh, getting into today's text. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you and we do recognize that you are a good father, that you are a father who has shown great compassion toward us and shown us the deep, deep love of Jesus for our lives. We pray that as we look at this passage that we would be able to experience in a much deeper way in our own lives the reality of your goodness, that you would open us to hear from you, to know you more, and to experience your healing voice in our lives. Speak through my words this morning, words of encouragement and life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have you ever been afraid to ask for help because you weren't sure what response you might get? Maybe if you're a student, you might have faced some struggles at school and you weren't, didn't want to talk to the teacher or the professor because you didn't know uh, how they would respond when you ask for the help you need. Or maybe you've had a problem at your job and you don't want to tell your boss because you think they're going to see you as weak. <laughs> now, in my own life, one of the areas that I most struggle to ask for help has to do with medical problems. Um, when I was in seminary over a decade ago, I had some significant uh, health issues that needed to get addressed, but it wasn't anything urgent. I could go uh, some years without having to uh, get it dealt with. But the doctor said, sooner or later, you're going to need to get surgery. Now, right around this time, I turned 25, so the laws at the time got kicked off my parents' uh, health insurance. <laughs> so I got a, a short-term insurance plan that covered me for a year, but just for catastrophic coverage. And the next year, I tried to get a long-term plan, and they said, denied, pre-existing condition, pre-Affordable Care Act. <laughs> now, I went about two years without having any health insurance whatsoever. And the whole time, I was living with this kind of question, okay, I can live my life, I can get along fine with this, but it's kind of nagging at me. Am I ever going to see a solution to this? Is there ever going to be a way to move forward. So in 2014, I moved to Columbia, became a long-term missionary. Um, and one of the benefits of being a long-term missionary was that I had good employer-based health coverage for the first time in my life. But every time I thought about calling the hospital to make an appointment, I felt anxious. And my mind would go on rerun about all the hours that I spent on the phone with the insurance company for them to tell me, no, you're not going to get covered. This isn't going to work. And so I would just put it off. And I thought, I don't know what to ask for. I don't know how to do this in Spanish in a health system I don't understand. And so out of my anxiety, I procrastinated, and then I felt worse about myself, so I procrastinated some more. <laughs> and then I felt ashamed about myself because this had become so difficult psychologically for me. Why is it so hard to ask for the help that I need? So about a year after I moved to Columbia, I finally got up the courage. I said, I'm just going to call the hospital. I'm going to figure this out. And I made an appointment. Now, to your average person, making a doctor's appointment probably doesn't seem like a huge step of faith. <laughs> But for me at that moment, that was a step of faith. That was what faith looked like for my life. I was stepping out from a situation of anxiety that I myself knew this seems kind of ridiculous considering the size of what's going on. Now, I mentioned this story of how anxiety and shame played out in one area of my own life because um, I think it might in some way be helpful as we enter into today's story and trying to think about the dynamics of what were these characters going through the passage we're going to look at today, we see a woman who is suffering from a chronic flow of blood. And she comes to Jesus looking for help. She knows she needs help. She knows, Jesus is, she knows Jesus is able to help her. She has faith, but at the same time, she's afraid. 
And so she does what she can to get herself healed in secret. And she thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So she's looking for help, but she, she's afraid to ask for it openly. But she does take a step of faith. Now, this woman's step of faith in this story doesn't come at what we might call an opportune moment. You see, she's coming to Jesus looking for help in the midst of somebody else's crisis. <laughs> if you look at the way this story starts, it starts with the story of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. And Jairus, according to um, Mark uh, 5, 23, has a problem. He says, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. Now, if we look at the parallel passage in Matthew 9, 18, Jairus says, My daughter has just died. <laughs> now, it's hard to say exactly what his, what his words were exactly, but the situation was urgent. Maybe he wasn't even sure if she was just at the point of death or if she had already died, but he knew something is urgent. I've got to come to Jesus because he's the only one who's going to be able to help me. He's the one who can give me a solution. And by all accounts, the faith that we see in Jairus here is a genuine faith. If we look at, uh, at verse 22, um, it says that Jairus came and, uh, or sorry, verse 23, it says he pleaded earnestly with him. He pleaded with Jesus. He, co he comes and he says, I can't fix this problem, but I think that you can. Now, the interesting thing is in Mark's story, we don't see what Jesus actually said to Jairus, but we see his actions. He goes with him. And going with Jairus is basically, Jesus is making a promise. Yes, I'm going to do what I can to heal your daughter. <laughs> I'm going with you. I'm going to your house because this is what you've asked for, and I'm going with you. Now, it's at that moment that the woman's unexpected intervention occurs. It's hard to know what she might have heard about Jesus before this. Had she heard about the leper who was unclean and had been cleansed when Jesus touched him that we hear about in Mark 1? Who knows? But she'd heard something about Jesus' healing power. And in spite of Jairus' predicament and the crisis that he's facing, she sees Jesus, she, she hears about him, and she realizes, this is my one shot to get my life turned around. <laughs> I better do something right now to try to find a solution to this problem. And I think to appreciate the gravity of her situation, what it was that she was going through, we need to explore a little bit, what were the problems that this woman faced? Now, if we look in the text, I think the passage explicitly highlights two key problems that the woman had. Um, if you look at uh, verse 25, it says, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So she had a physical problem, probably a menstrual hemorrhage. She had been bleeding for 12 years, literally, without having this situation improve. And in fact, it says that her condition was actually worsened by inadequate or incompetent medical help. This is before modern medicine. Who knows exactly what the doctors did, but whatever they tried to do that they thought might bring re relief actually made it worse. <laughs> Now, the second part of the problem that the passage highlights is that she was economically destitute. She had spent all of her money trying to be healed. Now, maybe in today's world, we might think of somebody who has a super high deductible insurance plan, spending $10,000 a year, uh, working at a low-income job, trying to get medical treatments and never getting any sort of relief. <laughs> um, not exactly parallel, but something like that. She was in a really difficult situation because everything she did to try to turn her life around wasn't working and just making her worse. I think between the lines, we can maybe pick up on three other dimensions of her plight. In addition to a physical and economic problem, she also had a religious difficulty. <laughs> you see, she was ceremonially unclean for 12 straight years. She couldn't participate fully in the worshiping life of Israel. 
In uh, Leviticus 15, you can read this later in your own time, but the laws of purity say that a woman during her menstrual flow is unclean ceremonially and uh, has to uh, be, be isolated from other people. And it says, if that continues longer than normal, she's unclean as long as it lasts. So for this woman, 12 years, she would have been unclean that entire time. Now, it doesn't mean that she couldn't have a relationship with God. It doesn't mean that she, she couldn't uh, have faith in God and relate to God, but she was on the periphery of the religious life of the people. She couldn't participate fully. And as a result of that, there was definitely a social element, too, of her situation. Anyone she touched would become ceremonially unclean. Anything that she sat on would become ceremonially unclean if somebody else or somebody would become unclean if they sat on it. So she more or less had to socially distance from people to one degree or another for most of 12 years. So take the pandemic six times over of social distancing, except everybody else is living life as normal. It's just you. That's what this woman had to deal with. So the final element, I think, of the problem that she faced, reading between the lines, is I don't think it's too speculative to say that she had some psychological challenges. She was facing crippling shame in her life. And so I think it's important to, to look at this and, and realize that the depth of this, of this situation to appreciate her act of faith and also the response that we find in Jesus. Now, for a woman in this condition, pushing through a crowd to get to Jesus and touch his clothing would have been something totally audacious. She could make Jesus or all the other people that she touched unclean. So her plan then is, I'm going to try to get myself healed in secret. I don't want to draw any attention to myself. I just want to do this on the down low. And the amazing thing is it works. <laughs> it tells us in verse 29 that she touches Jesus' clothing and it says, immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She didn't need anybody to tell her that she was healed. She knew it in her body. Physically, she felt this worked. And so she probably thinks, now I can just slip away and be done with it. I'm good. <laughs> but Jesus has other ideas. So Jesus stops. He looks around to see who touched him and Everybody's like, why are you asking that? There's all these people pressing around you. But he keeps asking the question insistently, and the woman realizes, I can't escape. I can't go unnoticed. And so she comes, and the, what we see in, uh, in verse 33, it says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She'd already been healed. Why was she afraid? Did she think Jesus was going to criticize her for her audacity? Maybe. Did she think the people around her were going to criticize her? You're an unclean woman. What are you doing? Maybe. But the response that we find in Jesus here, I think, is one of the most tender verses that we find in the Gospels. In verse 34, Jesus responds. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Do you see what Jesus is doing in the way that he interacts with this woman? She probably thought that the only kind of healing she might hope for from Jesus was physical. But Jesus isn't content to just heal her physically. He makes sure that she knows she didn't wring a miracle out of God involuntarily. She didn't do something against God's will. He says, I see you as a daughter. And, he's, and he says, your faith has healed you. You're not healed because of some magic superstitious power. You're, you're healed because God saw your faith and God honored your faith. He sees this, he recognizes it, and he says, yes, that is enough. You have come to me and I receive you. 
And so I think that really what Jesus is doing here is that he's seeking not just to heal her physically, but he's seeking to heal her, restore her to community, and also restore her sense of self. He's helping her to see you are somebody who has value and worth. You've been on the margins. You've been on the periphery of the life of your people for so long, but I have come that you might have peace, that you might have shalom, that you might have wholeness in your life through me. Now, one reason that I emphasize a lot this idea that Jesus wanted her to have a healing that went beyond just the physical is what we find in verses 29 and 34. If you look at these two verses side by side, we see something really interesting in the passage. We already saw that when she was healed, verse 29 says, she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What does verse 34 say? Jesus doesn't say to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace because you have been freed from your suffering. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's a command, be freed. (laughs) Why does he say be freed from your suffering if it said in verse 29 that she felt that she was freed from her suffering? (laughs) I think Jesus realizes that her suffering has multiple dimensions. Her suffering is physical, but her suffering is also something social, something psychological. She needs a deeper healing that the gospel would bring, that knowing the true God would bring, than just physical wholeness. And by doing this publicly, even though that was something that provoked a huge amount of fear, by doing it publicly, the whole community could see, this woman has been restored. She is to be accepted. She has a place in our community again. And actually, coming out into the open and facing that is one of the things that can often help in the process of healing and breaking and coming to a place of greater and greater healing from shame that we face. Now, in verse 35, the story shifts back to the story of Jairus. Some people come from Jairus' house and tell him, your daughter's dead, why bother the teacher anymore? So the stakes have been raised. The question isn't, can Jesus heal a girl on her deathbed, but can Jesus raise the dead to life? (laughs) And the interesting thing is, Jesus doesn't respond to those who come from Jairus' house, but he issues a challenge to Jairus himself. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. (laughs) Is Jairus going to believe that Jesus will raise the dead? Now, the interesting thing is we don't see how Mark, uh, Mark doesn't tell us how Jairus responds. (laughs) Jairus is there with Jesus. He goes with him. He benefits from the miracle. But in the entire rest of the story, Jairus never speaks. Isn't that kind of strange? Jesus gives him this challenge to his faith and then he just almost disappears from the scene. Now, I think this is intentional. You see, the story has something to say about faith But Jairus is not the main focus of the story. The main focus of the story is Jesus (laughs) and what it has to tell us about Jesus. And the final scene here decisively focuses on one key theme, Jesus' authority over death. So Jesus comes to Jairus' house and he prepares to reveal his authority over death through what I would consider a rather jolting and perhaps insensitive comment. (laughs) He tells the people, the child's not dead but asleep. Now, if I were there and beginning my grieving process, I would probably be a little bit offended at Jesus' words. (laughs) But I think that Jesus often says these kinds of things because he's trying to provoke cognitive dissonance. He's trying to get them to be like, what in the world, how can you say that? And then he shows his authority. He shows them the reality that he is the one who has power over death. And so Jesus goes in, he takes the girl by the hand, and he raises her to life. Now, It's interesting if we look at this miracle. This isn't the first time that somebody's been raised from the dead in the Bible. When we look at the Old Testament, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, they both raised people from the dead. Peter, in Acts 9, raises a girl from the dead. 
Paul, I think it's Acts 20, uh, Eutychus, the boy who fell out of the window after Paul's long sermon. But in almost all of those passages, interesting thing is when one of these prophets or one of these leaders raises someone from the dead, except for Paul, where it doesn't narrate the story quite as much, they show the person praying to God for help. But Jesus always addresses the dead person directly. He says, little girl, I say to you, get up. (laughs) Now, strictly speaking, raising someone from the dead doesn't prove that Jesus is God. But the way that he does it does make us stop and ask ourselves the question that's been ringing in our ears since the end of chapter 4 that we saw last week. Who is this? Who is this who calmed the storm with just a word? Who is this who can raise a girl from the dead with just a word? Could it be that he might be the God who created the world with his word? Well, I would say all of these things, they're just pieces in a puzzle, and eventually that puzzle together reveals the portrait. Who is Jesus? Well, he is truly human, but he is also true God. He is God incarnate, come to bring life and healing to the world. So Jesus raises this girl from the dead, and then the story ends on what probably for a lot of us is kind of a strange note in verse 43. It says, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Now you might be thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Aren't you all about healing people? Aren't you all about people coming to know you, to experience your grace? Why are you trying to shut people up? (laughs) Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. (laughs) But I think it actually makes some good sense when we look at the bigger picture of what Jesus is trying to do in his ministry. You see, if we go back to chapter 3, remember all the stories about opposition when people were saying that Jesus was doing what he did by the power of Satan? And earlier on in chapter 3, there was the first death plot on Jesus' life. The religiously zealous Pharisees conspiring with the politically well-connected Herodians to eliminate Jesus. Because Jesus was a threat to the people that held the religious and political power at the time. Now, Jairus is kind of an interesting figure. I would say he's kind of a borderline figure. He is described as a leader of the synagogue. In fact, every single time he's mentioned in the story, it describes him as a synagogue leader. (laughs) It never just mentions the name Jairus without that, that qualification. And he, as a synagogue leader, he would have had a number of responsibilities for overseeing the religious life of the community, the worshiping life of the synagogue. But he wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a teacher of the law. He wasn't somebody that had that same kind of of connection with the people who saw themselves as the direct custodians of the truth. (laughs) Um, Some ways, maybe he was closer to Peter Smith or Matthias Austin than Pastor Nate. (laughs) Um, Kind of one step removed from the direct line to the religious authorities and the denomination. So, He's somebody that you're going to have to be a little bit careful because if he starts telling people too broadly the kinds of people he's connected with, they might come and try to stop what Jesus is doing. And Jesus still wants to have freedom to do his ministry. But Jesus wants to have that freedom, but the time would come when he would press the issue. He would go to Jerusalem openly being proclaimed as the king of the Jews, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But until then, he's trying to have the time so that he can continue his ministry with, uh, with little opposition. But despite that possibility of opposition, I think the really beautiful thing that we see is that Jairus, even somebody who had a certain level of social prestige and influence, he recognized his need. Jesus saw that. He saw his faith. And Jesus acted with compassion. He acted with compassion. So what can we draw from this story for our lives? What is the main point that Mark is trying to communicate? 
I think the main idea is pretty, is pretty clear and simple. Jesus has the authority and the desire to bring healing to our lives. Now, the first part of this I want to focus on is Jesus' authority. Jesus has authority to bring healing to our lives. We saw from last week at the end of Mark 4 the question, who is this? He has authority over nature. Now Mark 5 continues this theme, who is this man? And we see he also has authority over demons. We see this in the whole first story uh, that that was mentioned earlier. Jesus shows himself more powerful than any spiritual forces that could possibly oppose him. And in this story, or these two interconnected stories, we see that Jesus has authority over illness. He has authority over impurity. Instead of himself being contaminated, he actually spreads cleanness and healing to the woman. And he has authority over death itself. So the first challenge of this text for us is, do we believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is the one with authority over every aspect of our life that is not in accordance with God's design and plan? for the flourishing of our lives and of creation. Now, probably for most of you, if you've been in the church for a while, yes, of course I believe this. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. We do things appealing to his authority because he is the mediator of salvation. He is the one who can bring about the things that we ask for. But we need to recognize that. That's fundamental. He is the one who has the authority to do it. And so when we uh, go to God in prayer, we pray in the name of Jesus, recognizing that he is the one who can help us. Now, the second point that I think we can really see clearly in this passage is that Jesus doesn't just have authority, he also desires to bring healing to our lives. Jairus and this woman were both attracted to Jesus because of his authority. They thought he could offer something to them. They thought that he was able to do it. But the question is, well, is he willing or not? <laughs> Does he actually want to bring them the healing that they need? And in both cases, the answer is yes, emphatically, yes. Now, what does that mean for our lives? I think if we're going to interpret this rightly, we have to understand that these stories are pointers toward the kingdom of God. Now, when we look at them, these aren't promises of exactly what God is going to do in every single circumstance if you just meet a certain threshold of faith. We shouldn't understand the stories in the Gospels in that way. Um, one verse I was reflecting on this week as I was reading this passage in the, the Lectio Divina um, for my devotions was uh, is a couple of verses in Psalm uh, 30, uh, 34. In Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Isn't that a paradox? God is with us even when we're brokenhearted. The righteous have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Well, when you're in that point of trouble, you might be going, where's the deliverance? (laughs) Because it doesn't say the righteous person never has any troubles because the Lord is the deliverer and therefore we don't have any problems in our life. That isn't the point of this text. Just like Pastor Nate said last week, the point of the calming of the storm. It's not to say we're never going to have any storms or any difficulties in our life. But what we do find is that God is with us. He's with us even in the moments of being brokenhearted And he is with us to bring deliverance, whether in this life or ultimately when Jesus returns. And so these stories are stories that point toward the kingdom of God and they show us what it is that God desires for human life. They give us anticipations or glimpses of the full restoration that God is going to bring us when Jesus comes back. And I think they point toward aspects of what God is often doing in our lives right now. So let's look for a minute at how these, uh, these two healings point toward God's kingdom. Now, first off, we can see that 
Jesus brings physical healing from illness. This is one of the most obvious things. God heals people, and this still happens today. It doesn't happen according to some kind of a formula, but God does heal people. Secondly, we see in this, in this story of this woman that Jesus affirmed her faith and her genuine relationship with God. He was bringing spiritual restoration to somebody who had been on the margins of the religious life of the people. And it's really interesting that Jesus doesn't say, you've been healed physically, now you need something else. You need, you need spiritual healing. She already had a relationship with God. What she needed was understanding and affirmation of the reality of that relationship. She already had it. She had faith. She knew God. But she needed to realize, God treats me like a daughter. God sees me with love and compassion. And I need to be able to live into that reality. Jesus also brought social restoration for this woman. Restoring her from this physical condition would also bring restoration to life in the community. And I think it was at least the beginning of a process of psychological healing from the shame and all of the things that she had gone through for these 12 years of suffering. Now, when we look at the story of Jairus' daughter, I think we can also see God is bringing restoration to this family. <laughs> Raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead brings great hope and joy. Losing a child is one of the most painful things that you can ever go through. And Jesus is saying, I want what's good for you. I want you to be able to experience my joy. And so he raises her from the dead. But the interesting thing is, this isn't the final victory over death. This girl would die again, right? I mean, everybody that Jesus raised from the dead in the Gospels, we have every reason to think they died again, second time. <laughs> and so some biblical scholars call them resuscitations rather than resurrections. There's different debates on how you want to talk about it. But the point is, these kinds of miracles, they are not the final victory over death, they are, but they are a pointer toward the final victory that one day is going to be ours. When we look at the, promise of the, new uh, the promises that we find in the New Testament, I think one of the most beautiful passages that explains what God has promised to us is found at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, famous chapter on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, speaks of this final victory. Paul writes, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting. This is the only time Paul ever cites the Old Testament about a prophecy that he says is still future. It hasn't come to pass yet. Because he looks toward the future and he says, what happened to Jesus when Jesus was raised from the dead? That's what's going to happen to us. God is going to raise us incorruptible, imperishable, to everlasting life that sin and pain and suffering cannot touch. That is God's promise for us. And I think one of the most beautiful summaries of this desire that God has for our holistic healing is found at the end of, toward the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21.4, there's a verse that says, that in the new heavens and the new earth, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we look forward to. <laughs> That's what these stories point toward. So what does this mean for us now? It doesn't mean that we have a magic formula for healing. It doesn't mean that illness is necessarily a sign of a lack of faith. My wife and my daughters are home because my daughters are a little bit sick this morning. <laughs> um, now, 
quite frankly, if we have the perspective that any illness or any kind of ongoing problem and difficulty in the life of a Christian is a sign of lack of faith, that can be extremely destructive for us spiritually in our understanding of who God is. When Sarah and I lived in Guatemala, um, one of the host families that Sarah had lived with for a few years uh, had a daughter with epilepsy. And the people in her church just told her, you just need to have more faith. You need to pray harder. God will heal you of this. And she prayed and she prayed and her epilepsy never went away. And so she was judged by the community for not having enough faith. And eventually she came to even believe it herself, I think, at least at some level. And she would just go, I'm just not a good enough Christian. I just don't have enough faith to get myself healed. This just isn't working for me. If we look at these kinds of stories and we draw that kind of conclusion, we are completely missing the point about Jesus' compassion. Because <laughs> the point is not to say, you have to somehow fix your faith to get to the level where it's going to be good enough for God. The point is to show the, the compassionate response of Jesus to those who come to him in their need. And so these stories are not about magic formulas, but they are pointers to the way that God's grace is breaking into our lives and into this world even now. God heals people. God forgives us our sins. God calls us his daughters, his sons. He restores our relationships in the community of the church. And often, as part of this community, we can often begin to find healing in our identity, our belonging, and we can begin to find some freedom from the destructive power of fear and shame that can work in our lives. And so we see that Jesus is our healer. He delights to heal us and to restore us. That's the main focus of the story. Jesus has the authority, but not just the authority, he has the desire to bring us healing and restoration and wholeness for us to be able to go in peace. But the story also does have a challenge for our faith. And so I want to um, I want to conclude by looking at what does this story have to say to us about the nature of faith? And I think that the, the main thing that Mark is trying to communicate through the story is that God honors the faith of those who come to Jesus in their need. God honors the faith of those who come to Jesus in their need. Living in faith that we see in the story doesn't mean you're not going to have any questions. It doesn't mean you're not going to have any fears. It doesn't mean that your heart's never going to race when you face a threatening situation or when you have bad memories of the past or something that's happened to you. It doesn't mean you have to clean up all your shame before you can come to Jesus. <laughs> it's not about denying the challenges of living in a broken world. You see, even though the woman was afraid, Jesus honored the faith that led her to act. <laughs> she was afraid. But he said, I treat you as a daughter whom I delight to restore. So what does it mean for us then to, to follow this model? Well, maybe for some of us, our idea of living in faith is just kind of a passive acceptance of divine sovereignty and providence. I don't want to pray too hard or too urgently for something. Just pray for God's will to be done and leave it there. Now, there are times in life when we do have to accept God's no or God's not yet. Rest in divine sovereignty, yes. But true faith cries out to God urgently from a place of distress. <laughs> and this is what we see in the story with both the woman and with Jairus. They come to Jesus with an urgent need. And I think one of the most beautiful things about this story is to look at the question, who is really the model of faith that we find here? See, Jairus and the woman both have faith. But whose faith is highlighted by the story? It isn't Jairus so much as this woman, who had been at the periphery, the margins of Israelite society. 
Um, commentator James Edwards, he, he says, Mark uses this kind of sandwich technique where he starts a story with one thing and then he goes to another story and then comes back to the first one again. Pastor Nate talked about that when we were looking at Mark 3. He starts with the story of Jairus, then talks about this woman and her intervention, and then back to the story of Jairus. What is he trying to do with that? Well, historically, you could say, well, it happened that way, so he told it that way. Okay, sure. But the really interesting thing in this story is that we can see that the woman actually becomes a model of faith for Jairus. You see, Jesus heals her. He restores her. He tells her, God has honored your faith. Your faith has made you well. Jairus is watching this entire thing. And isn't it really interesting the next thing Jesus says to Jairus? Don't be afraid, just believe. <laughs> After this woman has come to Jesus precisely in her fear and he has accepted her in that. <laughs> now, I think there's a lot more we could explore about the nature of fear and how that relates to faith. But I think it's pretty clear that we can see God honors our faith even when we don't feel like we have everything together, even when we haven't fixed everything about our lives. And Jesus is holding up this person who is probably ignored by most of the people in that time and says, this is what faith looks like. Learn from her. <laughs> so I think for us, um, we really have two challenges for our own faith. First off, do we have faith like this woman? Do we come to Jesus in our need and say, doesn't matter how difficult the things are that I'm dealing with, I recognize my need for you and I'm going to trust in your goodness and your compassion. If not, what keeps us from going to him? And the second challenge that I wanna, I wanna look at here is just the question, who are the models of faith that we have in our own lives? Who do we look to to learn from about what the Christian life looks like? <laughs> now, for those of us who live here, Wheaton is just about the center of the American evangelical world. It's about as close to the middle of what you might consider what people think is normative evangelicalism. How much do we learn from people of other experiences? Now, I know a lot of you know Manuel and Loida's story, for example. I've heard them share about the challenges in Colombia and also with pursuing their studies here. For me, when I lived in Colombia for a few years teaching the seminary where Manuel uh, had, and Loida had studied, I can say their story is pretty typical of most of my students. They, they come to seminary not knowing literally where they're going to find the money to pay for food for the rest of the semester. It is a very normal experience for people in the rest of the world to be living, living life in that kind of day-to-day -day survival mode. And I think we've got a lot to learn from Christians from the rest of the world. <laughs> we also have a lot to learn from Christians from other experiences in our own country, from people who faced poverty, unequal education systems, racism, gender discrimination, whatever other things that they have faced, and they have been faithful to God and come to Jesus knowing that he is good in spite of all those things, we can learn from their faith too. And so I say that just to challenge us. If you don't have models of people in your life who literally are coming to God out of a place of desperation and profound need, it might be time to start listening, building those relationships with people who can teach you about what that looks like. So to conclude, um, I think we see three key challenges in this text. First off, we see Jesus has the authority to bring healing to our lives. Do we believe that? He desires to bring healing to our lives. Do we know that deep in the core of our being? And God honors the faith of those who come to Jesus in their need. So do we go to him in our desperation? Do we look to those who 
who have modeled that and learned from them that can challenge us. And I pray that each and every one of us would leave the service with a deeper conviction. Jesus is good. He is compassionate. God wants you to experience his healing and his grace in your life in a deep way.